0: Let's ask God now to help us uh, with his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious uh, heavenly Father, we thank you that we do have your word, a sure and completely reliable word, the word of the living God. Uh, We pray in your mercy you would help me to speak it truthfully and clearly. And gracious Father, we pray that you would help us all to understand it and to know its good work in our lives, moving us to trust Jesus and equipping us to live for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to do good and suffer rather than do evil. Now, I hope, as you heard Peter's recommendation that we should just accept suffering, you thought nonsense. You didn't think that? Well, let me say you are out of step with your society if you don't think nonsense. For many in Peter's day and ours, the goal of life is to avoid suffering and to maximise your pleasure and enjoyment, to be happy. In that view, it's better not to suffer at all, to avoid, not accept suffering. Counselling acceptance stops you from resisting the causes of your suffering, frustrates the goal of human life on earth, the only life (coughs) in which we can enjoy pleasure and happiness. And suffering for doing good, doing the right thing, well, that's actually worse, isn't it? The injustice of that suffering just adds to the suffering and the anguish. In this view, suffering, any suffering, especially suffering for doing good, should be resisted. And adding in, if Peter does, if that should be God's will, just reinforces for many how religion stops people from really flourishing in this life. Religion, they say, It's just used to keep people quiet, to accept what they should resist, to not be active in getting for themselves the happiest life, the most pleasurable life they can. For many, telling people that it's better to suffer for doing good is exactly the wrong advice. What they'd rather hear is avoid suffering at all costs. Why let the only life we have be made miserable... And if you can't avoid it, resist. Resist those who are making you suffer with violence if necessary. So why does Peter say it? Why does he say it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil? (coughs) And why does he say, as he does in chapter 4 verse 1, That Actually, this is the key thought we must embrace if we're going to live for Christ in this world, live as God's children doing his will. Well, Peter gives us the answer in this passage, three things. Firstly, he'll say it's better to suffer for doing good if it's God's will because Christ suffered for doing good and triumphed. Oh, and secondly, he'll say, the Christ who suffered for doing good, for doing God's will, is the Christ who can keep us safe forever. And thirdly, he'll say, accepting this thought, that it's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will rather than to do evil, accepting this thought will actually break the hold of sin over us. So we can live for God, live as God's children. Christ suffered. Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Right at the heart of the Christian gospel is this truth. Suffering is in our faith from the beginning. And Christ didn't suffer as an evildoer. He was righteous. He hadn't committed any sin. He suffered for doing good, accepting in the garden to do God's will to the end, to drain the cup of God's judgment on sin on our behalf. He suffered for doing good. Good. Suffering for our sins, making himself an offering for sin, the offering that would turn aside God's just anger from us. We see already that his suffering for doing good was purposeful. Suffering for doing good, according to God's will, purposeful. And it was effective, wasn't it? Our Lord Jesus has brought all who believe in him into the presence of the Holy God. And the believers Peter was writing to knew that. They knew in Peter's words that they'd been healed by Christ's wounds, that they'd returned to the shepherd of their souls, that they could now call the Holy God Father. And believers in Jesus today know that Christ's suffering was effective, don't we? We know we're forgiven. We know we have the spirit in our hearts crying, Abba, Father we know we too can come with confidence into the presence of the Holy God. Christ suffering according to the will of God, Christ suffering for doing good, and by that suffering saving us, that's actually our starting point in the Christian life. And so we know already, don't we, that great good can come from suffering according to God's will. It's not purposeless, it's not useless. But it would be pretty discouraging if that suffering only brought good to others, left the sufferer in their misery. So Peter goes on to tell us more. He's going to tell us that Christ's suffering for doing good was actually the way that God brought Christ to triumph, that he was no loser for suffering according to the will of God. And his triumph demonstrates and guarantees the triumphs of God's judgments in God's creation, establishes God's order as unassailable. It actually tells us that it is God's way and those who live by God's way who will win in the end. Christ also suffered for doing good. He was put to death in the flesh, he writes, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient. Now there are in verses 18 to 22 quite a lot that may be unfamiliar to us, and there are also a number of words and phrases whose interpretation is disputed, giving quite different understandings of the passage. I'm going to be presenting my understanding this morning, that is, my conclusions about those disputes so that we don't get lost in the details. But I am more than happy to give a detailed explanation of those conclusions afterwards. The point of the passage is to present to Peter's hearers and to us the extent of the triumph of the Christ who suffered for doing good and therefore the security of those who are in Christ. And Peter's going to present the extent of his triumph in two related ways. First, by recounting what happened to Jesus after his death and secondly, by relating that to these spirits in prison. Peter starts with Jesus' death. He was put to death in the flesh. Here he's referring to the Lord Jesus' death on the cross for sin, of which he has just spoken. But Jesus' life didn't end there, didn't end with his suffering for doing good. Peter tells us he was made alive by the Spirit. Jesus rose from the dead in the power of the Spirit. And Peter is referring here to Jesus' resurrection. So whatever Peter is talking about next, It's not happening in the period between Jesus' death and resurrection. It is after the resurrection. And Peter goes on to talk about what happens after his resurrection. It says there, in which he also went. In his spirit-empowered resurrection, or more likely, on which occasion, on the occasion of his resurrection, he also went and made proclamation to the Spirit's In prison, so Peter's referring to a journey Jesus makes. The English translations make it sound like it's a journey whose destination is the spirits in prison. That that's the point of his journey. He went to visit them. That actually is not the point Peter is making. Literally, it is going. He proclaimed. And the emphasis is on his proclamation, a proclamation he makes by his going. But where is he going? Well, that's made clear in verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. In verse 22, he has gone is actually exactly the same Greek word as used in verse 19. So literally it's who? Going into heaven is at the right hand of God. Peter is describing, in a sense, the one movement of Christ. He died, he has risen, and he has ascended. The risen Christ has gone into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. And in doing that, he proclaimed to and he demonstrated his victory over all spiritual powers, angels, authorities and powers subject to him. The Christ who has suffered for doing good according to God's will now reigns over heaven, in heaven, over all, an unassailable rule. So his verdicts will never be reversed. His rule unable to be challenged. And Peter brings that home that the extent of his triumph by speaking of the impact of his ascension on these spirits in prison in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison now we probably don't give much thought to genesis 6 and what happened to the sons of god who defied god by seeking to impose themselves their desire and power <coughs> on humanity. But the people of Peter's day and place did. They actually did think quite a lot about these sons of gods and of Noah and his time. Scholars tell us that not just amongst the Jews but also amongst the non-Jews of that part of Asia Minor in which the believers to whom Peter is writing lived, speculation about Noah and the flood was active. In fact, There was a series of coins printed from just a little later from this area that actually have symbols of Noah on them on one side and of the emperor on the other. And that speculation was also shared by the Jews or some of the Jews of this time. And it is witnessed to, say, for example, in the book of 1 Enoch. Now, there are two things we need to note about that speculation to help us understand this passage. Firstly, the activity of these sons of God in Genesis 6, who were reckoned as angelic beings, was believed by some to be the source of evil spirits and powers on the earth. And secondly, unlike humanity, these sons of God, these angelic powers, it says, were not destroyed in the flood. It was believed that they were living but imprisoned and that belief is also reflected in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6. Peter is referring to these angelic beings when speaking of the spirits in prison and for many in Peter's audience these spirits were the archetypal rebellious powers, the embodiment of evil and in a sense a continuing threat to God's justice and order the source of chaos and opposition to God, still waiting to be released and again defy God. But Peter tells them and us that the Lord Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus who suffered for doing good according to God's will, has removed all hope from these spiritual beings. His triumph over all evil, his vindication of God's moral order and his judgments in his death and resurrection is what Jesus proclaims as the risen Jesus goes into heaven to reign at God's right hand with all spiritual and earthly powers subject to him. In this going, these spirits and all the world know that their end, their destruction is certain because God's son reigns. Now, of course, these spirits may not play much of a role in our imaginations or our conception of evil at work or of the powers that challenge God's rule. But think for a moment of what you see as the greatest threat to God's order. Collective human rebellion, godless philosophies that seem to grip the popular imagination, or perhaps, yes, still, unseen spirits, powers from beyond this world. The Marvel series testifies, doesn't it, to how that idea has a grip on the human imagination still. Peter is telling us that Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension Proclaims that whatever the forces are that are ranged against God, whatever their pretensions, they will not triumph. Jesus reigns securely. God's justice, his moral order, will prevail over all rebellion. And the Jesus who, suffering for good according to the will of God and triumphing, says Peter, is the Jesus who can keep his people safe when God's judgments are enacted on the earth, when the establishment of God's righteous order means the removal of all the wicked from his creation, from his presence. Having spoken of the spirits, Peter now directs his hearers to God's salvation of Noah from judgment as a type of Christian salvation from judgment, the salvation symbolised in baptism. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in in it a few, (coughs) that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How did God save Noah when he judged the wickedness of human violence on the earth? Well, it was by the ark, which Noah faithfully prepared. That's true, isn't it? But what carried Noah to safety? What separated him from that evil age, which was under God's condemnation? It was actually the water. He was saved through water. The very waters that were the means of judgment on all those outside the ark were the same waters that lifted Noah from the judged earth and carried Noah and his family to safety and a new life. Now think about how God saves us as we are in Christ just as Noah was in the ark, as we are in Christ by faith. The very death that Peter has spoken of in verse 18, where Christ makes himself the sin offering, the very death that is God's judgment on sin is in Christ the death that saves us. In Christ Christ joined to him by faith, we are carried by him through judgment to new life as he shares with us his resurrection life. And this is what is symbolised in the baptism that now saves us, our being joined to Christ in his death and resurrection by faith, our being carried to safety in Christ through Christ's death. Peter makes it very clear, doesn't he, that it's not the physical washing of baptism that saves, it's not the act itself, a washing that removes dirt from the body. No, it's what baptism symbolises that saves. What Peter calls, following the ESV, the appeal to God for a good conscience. That appear, you see, in baptism is made on the basis of Christ's work, on the basis of the authority of the risen Christ to forgive sins just as he promised. When believers are baptised, and these were all first-generation believers he was speaking to and therefore immersed, when believers are baptised in response to the gospel, what are they doing? Well, they're crying out to God to do for them individually what God has promised in the gospel to do for all who will repent and believe. And it's, a, it's an appeal to God on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection that he will forgive them, cleanse them from their sin, wash their conscience clean of all that defiles as the Lord Jesus has promised in the gospel. And this saves, this forgiveness is certain For the Lord Jesus, to whom God has entrusted the authority to both judge and forgive, reigns over all. All angels, all authorities, all powers, all who might resist his rule and seek to overturn his judgments, are subject to him. There is no evil power that can threaten his people's security. It seems complicated imagery, doesn't it? But don't miss the point. The Jesus who suffered for doing good according to God's will keeps his people safe. He rescues them from the judgment of God. He brings them to new life to share, as Peter will make clear in verse 6 of chapter 4, to share his risen life. All who, trusting his gospel that he died for our sins, was buried and rose again, and show that believing response in being baptised in obedience to their Lord are safe forever in Christ. Having reminded us that the Lord Jesus in suffering for doing good has both triumphed and saved us, Peter now applies that to believers, renewing his call to persevere in doing God's will by being willing ourselves to suffer. For doing good. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, Christ suffered in the flesh is an abbreviated reminder of all that Peter has just taught that Christ suffered for doing good and through that suffering triumphed and became the almighty Saviour of his people. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, has done that in this life says Peter, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. That is, believer, equip yourself in your struggle to live as God's people in a world that is still ignorant of God and wants to live as if God does not reign. Equip yourself to live as God's child by adopting the same mindset as Christ had The mindset that says it is better to suffer for doing good according to God's will than to do evil. The mindset that it says it is better to suffer than to disobey God. Why should we do that? Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Now that's not saying that bodily suffering will make you sinless. Experience, I'm sad to say, demonstrates that is not the case. Nor is there an argument here for self-imposed ascetic practices that afflict the body as a path to holiness. Peter is talking about adopting a mindset, a commitment to do God's will even if it means suffering. This commitment, he says, embraced beforehand, frees us from the hold of sin. If we're going to live as Christ's followers, he's saying, we have to reckon that it will bring suffering, and we have to accept that beforehand. Otherwise, as soon as suffering arises for doing God's will, we'll crumble. For example, take the suffering he's about to mention. When we meet mocking, suspicion and exclusion from those we once were associated with, well, we'll start finding reasons why we don't have to do what God says. Reasons that will allow us to avoid suffering. Of course, there's other suffering, like longings denied, desires unfulfilled, exclusion from our family. And they're all equally powerful, aren't they? in making us question God's will. But knowing beforehand that doing the good God commands will bring suffering and that it is better to endure that suffering than to do evil, than to disobey our God, that sets us free from the hold of sin, sets us free to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires but for God's will. That is, it sets us free to live as God's child. It tells us that trusting Jesus, we are now able to live like Jesus. Because that's what that little phrase, living for God's will, means. Remember, that's what Jesus taught us to pray for. Thy will be done. And that is what Jesus committed himself to do in the garden, isn't it? My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. The life of Jesus' followers is living to do God's will. That is, it is living like Jesus, who in this life gave himself to do God's will, even though he suffered. And Peter reminds his hearers and us that that life lived to do God's will will be a different life from the lives of those around us who do not know God, a different life from the life we lived before we trusted Jesus. There's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behaviour. Evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. You see, like ours, the society of Peter's day was marked by self-indulgence and sexual immorality. Drinking parties, whether private or associated with civic groups like guilds, were a common feature of their social life. And those parties would often be accompanied by sexual indulgence with courtesans and prostitutes. And such indulgence was often associated with feasts in honour of the gods. It was a society where the pursuit of pleasure was the goal. Pleasure as a relief from the drudgery of their lives and also a distraction from the consciousness of the nearness of death. But then, as now, Christians were called to live self-controlled lives, to have nothing to do with sexual immorality or all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, and to shun drunkenness, which dishonoured God, and idolatry, which dishonoured God. The believers Peter is writing to, he says, had once shared that life, a sign that they were converts from Gentile backgrounds. And, and when they were... Gentiles, they'd seen no problems with it. You know, it was just normal to party and to join the socially sanctioned worship of the gods. But having come to be believers in Jesus, they'd stopped. They'd withdrawn from those activities to do the will of God. And this had provoked their former companions. They now thought their behaviour strange, unnatural almost. I mean, think of it. Why wouldn't you pursue pleasure... Where you can, they thought, more. they soon came to class this Christian behavior as anti-human, spoke of Christians as enemies of the human race, people who threatened the well-being of the whole society by their refusal to honor society's gods. Oh, and they slandered them by saying that they were people who substituted secret and shameful rituals for the open enjoyment of healthy pleasures. That's the kind of suffering Peter's readers were experiencing. And with it, of course, the anxiety that worse would follow. For where lies are told about a group of people where they're labelled as odd and suspicious, as not part of the mainstream, it's easy for that group to become the target of worse oppression, of legally sanctioned or mob violence. And in later years, that did follow. Now, all that has a modern ring to it, doesn't it? Because believers today won't participate in and endorse our society's sexual immorality, don't agree with the claim that human freedom is sexual freedom, we're labelled as a people who oppose human flourishing. Because we think marriage is a model of the relationship of Christ and his church, and so as a union from difference with different responsibilities for husband and wife, our teaching is treated as suspicious, slandered as supporting domestic abuse. Oh, because you might be the only one in your sporting team who won't join in the drinking or is reluctant to share in the carousing of the office end-of-year party, well, you may well be marked out as strange too. And all that can be hard, can't it, to be treated with suspicion, to have your motives and views misrepresented, to be isolated from your peers. To endure, we need to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ, that it's better to suffer for doing good than to do evil and to remember what Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension make certain. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give account. Instead of getting angry at your treatment or fearing those who are harassing you or feeling sorry for yourself, you should shudder for those who continue to reject the Lord Jesus. It has been said to me from time to time over the years that I speak too much of judgement. But actually I don't speak any more of judgement than the scriptures do. And the judgment of the last day is something we should live conscious of every day, conscious of our own accounting as God's servants and children and, of course, conscious of the terror that awaits those who will meet the living, holy God as their judge on that day. You see, our God knows the truth. He searches the heart. And so the excuses we make for ourselves will be exposed in his light as empty self-justifications. And the living God's no relativist. His standards of truth and love are absolute. His commitment to his word and his commands unwavering. He won't accept the standards by which we have chosen to judge ourselves. It'll be by his standards. And that judgment is certain And searching. And unlike what Peter's age and our age wants you to believe, death will be no escape. God is the judge of the living and the dead. Peter's pagan contemporaries didn't give much thought to judgment after death. That's why the idea of accepting suffering in this life for good seems so unreasonable, because this life is all you had. And that's why they thought that Christians who suffered for doing God's will in this life and died were such losers. But Peter assures his readers, verse 6, for this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. He's assuring us that though believers in the gospel who had died had suffered the same judgment of the death of this age of the body that all the children of Adam endure. They would live to God in or by the Spirit, the same Spirit who gave Jesus' resurrection life. The life of those who, trusting Jesus, equipped themselves with the same mindset as Christ had that it's better to suffer for doing good, for doing God's will, than to do wrong. Is the life that will share in the life of God forever. The life that will share in resurrection life, having the Spirit of Christ, the risen Christ. You see, it's only in Christ, believing Him and following Him, walking in His footsteps by being committed to doing the will of God, whatever it costs us that we will be carried through the overwhelming judgment of the just God to new life. And that is the big point. And if you've not yet committed yourself to Christ, found forgiveness through believing in him, if you are still pursuing your pleasures and living as you please, ignoring God, you should think, about what your hope will be in that judgment, Christ's resurrection makes certain. No rebellion will succeed against him. And if, as you're thinking about that, you realise in God's mercy that you have no hope, well, you ought to call out to the Lord Jesus, the living Lord Jesus, who Peter tells us suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's you and I, that he might bring us to God, call out to him, he will hear you, he will show you mercy and then come and talk. But if we're believers, we should not stop here. We shouldn't stop until we remind ourselves what the will of God for us is, especially those aspects of that will Peter focuses on here. Uh, You've seen already that doing the will of God means that we should have nothing to do with drunkenness and sexual immorality and the worship of the false gods of our world like money or pleasure or our own wills. But if that is what God wills, we do not do. What does he will? We do. The end of all things, he writes, is at hand. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for your prayers. Now, verses 7 to 11 are timely words for us as we endure the continuing pressure of the COVID pandemic and the steps taken to stop its spread and all the emotions that go with that. Here's what God says. is his will, a will we should be willing to suffer to do. Firstly, God wills that we should be sober-minded, not carried away, not intoxicated by our passions or driven by our fears. And we should be a people who look to God for salvation, for relief. Prayer seems so ordinary, but God wills we should be devoted to it, relying on him, setting our hope in him. And verse 8, we must maintain a constant and sincere love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, being reminded to love is, of course, very general, isn't it? Love has to be practical, and what that practical love uh, looks like will vary from situation to situation. But actually, Peter is pointing to a particular aspect of love that he wants to highlight to a community under pressure. Love covers a multitude of sins, that is, He's highlighting what you might call the patience and forbearance that love tells us we have to show to each other. You see, when we are experiencing when we experience others disappointing us or making life difficult for us by their choices and believers will do that, we can on the one hand be critical, resentful, withdraw or we can stay committed to them because Christ loves them and seek to encourage and practise the love that covers a multitude of sins. Oh, and then Peter says there's hospitality practised cheerfully. You know, when we've been apart for so long and when there's still fear about contact with people, it does take a bit of effort, doesn't it? It takes trusting obedience to have each other in our homes, but we're told to practice hospitality. And Peter says that it's God's will that we should serve one another with the gifts that God has given us. And again, there's a cost to that at this time, isn't there? Above all, he says, we have to be committed to a life that brings glory to our God through our loyalty to Jesus, from living his way in every part of our life. They are timely reminders. The will of God for us is prayer, patient forbearing love, hospitality, service with the gifts God has given us. Now, that seems so ordinary, doesn't it? But in a world that mocks relying on God in prayer, that seeks to cast suspicion on Christians and isolate them, oh, and where we can become impatient with each other, It costs to do this will of God. We should reckon with that, remembering what our Lord Jesus modelled and vindicated, that it is better to do good, the good of obeying our God, doing his will, and to suffer than to do wrong. That commitment to the will of God, come what may, is the mark of Jesus' people in this world and it is focused on love for his people. And, of course, that's the challenge of this passage uh, for us. Have you reckoned with the reality and certainty of suffering as the cost of doing the good God calls each one of us to do? And believing the gospel, have you settled in your heart that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wills, than to do evil. Have you settled that in your heart? Whether you spend the remaining time you have on this earth to do his will, not what you feel is his will, but what he has declared is his will in his word. Whether you spend the remaining time you have on this earth to do his will is the measure of whether you really believe the gospel. Whether you really believe that Jesus, who suffered for doing good, doing God's will, was dying for you, bearing your sins, and that God has raised him to life and that he now has all authority, authority over all the powers and forces that rebel against God, and so his judgments and his forgiveness are certain and will never be overturned. Whether you really believe the gospel that offers not necessarily happiness or success or wealth now, but in Christ, sure forgiveness, rescue from a judgment, Jesus' resurrection makes certain, rescue to resurrection life. If you or others looked at, say, your willingness to confess Jesus, to give a defence for your hope? Looked at your prayer, your love, your service of God's people. Would they, do you, see someone who believing in Jesus was becoming like Jesus by persevering in the will of God even if it means suffering? Is that what you see? Arm yourself with the attitude that it is better to suffer to do God's will than to do wrong, because that's the gospel mindset. And give yourself to God's good will while there's still time. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us such a conviction that Jesus suffered for our sin. Such a conviction that you have raised him to life. Such a conviction that you have exalted him over all. That we would commit ourselves to follow him wholeheartedly. Knowing that it is better to suffer for doing good for doing your will than to do evil. So that we live as your children in this world. Not doing your will reluctantly, but doing your will with delight and joy. Because we know that in Christ we are kept safe and we will be carried with him through the judgment to everlasting life in your presence. Please work that conviction in us. Help us to arm ourselves with that thought so that in this life, in our following of Jesus, glory and honour is given to you, our almighty, holy and loving and merciful God. Amen.